to FOSS and Crafts. A podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host Morgan. And my co-host Chris. Today we are joined by a special guest, Mallory Nodal, who is the CTO for the Center for Democracy and Technology. Welcome, Mallory. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Yeah, so you have a very interesting background for uh, software and standards. To start off with, would you like to talk a little bit about your human rights background and working for a human rights institution? Sure. Yeah. So right now I work for the Center for Democracy and Technology, which is um, a policy shop based in DC. Um, and as a chief technologist, I'm not overseeing any software development, but um, I do essentially perform technical advice. I give technical advice to my colleagues um, who are crafting policy suggestions or doing advocacy work elsewhere. And I also do my own advocacy um, in technical spaces as well. And before this, I've also had a, I've worked in a couple different positions, all at human rights um, organizations or profits, and typically do a sort of perform a similar function. I have a technical background. I don't have a degree in computer science. I have one in physics and mathematics and secondary science education. Um, and so I, you know, I have a lot of experience working with computers, of course. I have been a volunteer since administrator for a small provider for um, over a decade. And it's more about applying that uh, expertise in uh, advocacy spaces where, you know, the human rights concessions or the social justice implications around a tech, like a technology or, or the, in the internet age or some digital aspect of it um, needs that technical expertise. So previously I worked at Article 19, which is a, non um, a human rights charity based in London. And they have field offices all over the world. And I was the head of digital there where I led a team of public interest technologists like myself. And then going further back, I worked at the Association for Progressive Communications as a technical specialist. And APC was founded actually kind of around the same time as all of these have been founded around, you know, about 20 to 30 years ago. And it was clear that the programming and the concerns of a human rights organization were going to be significantly impacted by the internet and the dawn of a very digital age that everything from, you know, women's rights to freedom of expression, um, protest. Well, if everything involves computers today, if every aspect of our lives and these are no longer nerds' rights issues. These are because everything's a computer related, and thus a computer rights issue it affects every kinds of our human rights issues, right? Completely. And I think going a step further, so we see that everywhere. Like you're you're right on the mark. You can't do uh, you know human rights advocacy without at some point dealing with issues or talking to the internet and that sort of thing. It's similar to media and other intersections there. Um, but I think that for component of what I feel like I do is I help to um, uncover some of the hidden power dynamics embedded in technology, which are harder to see when a person isn't technical. And I, I don't think that we need to constantly center the technology or constantly center technical expertise, but it is really, really useful when that is available um, to help with advocates. And the reason I think we use the, the term public interest technologist is it's a similar sort of a recognition, a realization that was had in the 70s that, in fact, having a public interest lawyer, having the ability to unpack and uncover and leverage 
uh, the court system, the judicial system, like these things also have helped nonprofits enormously in, in their work globally. It's a similar idea. Are, are you able to talk about what any of those hidden power dynamics are? Definitely. <laughs> I mean, I think that there's a lot that goes into our daily lives where, yes, we're using the internet all the time. Um, things don't really happen in an online and offline space anymore. But even back when they did, right, even back when um, some of these organizations I worked for were founded, one would log into the internet, you would now be online, and it would be a different dynamic than if you were off. Um, the power dynamics were such that, um, yeah, it, it, it does have an impact on your, your offline world, right? So even if we can clearly separate, like, well, I, you know, as a woman, I, I have, um, you know, I'm at a disadvantage because I'm in perhaps a, an abusive relationship and so on. And, and now that there's an internet or now that I have a mobile phone or now that there's some digital component to it, that problem has been exacerbated. Mm -hmm. um, that's been around for, for as long, decades, right? Yeah, it's like tracking software on your cell phones and stuff like that. Exactly, exactly. And we can extrapolate that, um, which is often the case, right? When you look at the sort of uh, lowest common denominator in our society or the folks that are most marginalized and affected, things that affect them tend to also affect everyone else who are in positions of privilege and so on with a different framing. So, you know, um, we're also concerned about the mobile phone being tracking devices because maybe we're worried about government surveillance. Maybe we just feel like as a society, we shouldn't have that capability. Anybody should have it, whether it be our intimate partners or our government or our banking institution or whatever it is, our health insurance providers. Mm -hmm. Parents. Yeah. And so I think that it's hard to know exactly who has that power, who has access to that kind of data about us, um, unless we understand a little bit more about the internet. Because there's a lot of intermediaries that we don't think about. We have usually um, like a transactional relationship with our internet service provider or our mobile phone operator. Um, and we might know that like the company that made our device, because it's probably stamped on the back of it. And, and maybe we log into different services and Sometimes those are paid accounts and sometimes they're not. But there's a whole lot of other companies or, or entities that are involved that are handling our traffic, our data that we don't see at all. And I think that's where I find that um, really interesting, where it's a very hidden power dynamic, um, but it has all the same pitfalls as the rest. It's just even worse because it's harder to pinpoint exactly what might be going on. So I think that's interesting, bringing up all the tracking devices. And I think a lot of our conversation, it's it's interesting that, you know, you brought up kind of these two areas. One of them is, you know, very personal and domestic. And the other one is, you know, kind of the infrastructure of our society or governmental and, and those kinds of layers. Um, I just like two days ago, I was trying to find a particular kind of USB cable and I couldn't find it on the usual places I shop. So I hopped on uh, Alibaba and was just like, oh, let's see if they've got it there. And like one of the first results that came up was uh, like a, you know, a USB charging cable that was secretly also a microphone that would record people in a GPS thing. And it, like, it just kind of terrified me just seeing that. And it can feel really disempowering knowing that these things are kind of omnipresent. Like it's possible it can, you know, like now the chances that I guess that somebody's probably handed me such a cable are probably low. And hopefully I have nobody in my life who would do such a thing. Probably the greater threats that I have are actually the institutional and governmental levels of uh, surveillance that are threatening me. But it can be really 
disheartening as an activist to feel like, oh, you know, well, maybe there's nothing I can do. So I wonder what can I, I imagine a large portion of your role as a public interest technologist is hopefully also trying to get people out of the headspace of hopelessness. Um, and so how can you get people out of the headspace of hopelessness, especially activists who might, you know, um, be interested in or doing really at risk work? Um, you know, what 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 kind of things are involved in your job to to help people feel more empowered as in, opposed to, I feel like, the creeping amount of disempowerment that that comes over our lives? Mm, that's that's a really good question, because it's very easy to see folks like us who are well-informed about technology, be really sort of pessimistic, right? We know how broken everything really is or how insecure everything really could be. Um, and so it's hard to technical experts that are actually optimistic. I think that the way that I sort of get out of that space is by looking at the bigger picture. And that might mean actually when you go that direction, you get even more pessimistic because, you know, global politics and, you know, um, the dynamics of, of the financial sector and the economy, like, you know, getting, like expanding doesn't necessarily help when we're living in an age that is generally sort of depressing from that perspective. But I do think it does help to um, get out of the technology space, get out of the, you know, we're ruled by um, these things and actually we should have control over them. Um, or that just because you can do something doesn't mean you should, and that we need to get back into a space where we're setting social norms and we're working on the policy level to stop, you know, these like export trolls of spy equipment or, you know, whatever it is and, and set norms around that. Cause that feels like that's within the realm of human, like humans can do that. That's what our civilization is, is built on. And so while I do think it's important for activists to know how to control their technology and the trust relationships they have. Uh, with their devices and all the different entities involved in, you know, handling their data and so on. Um, I think that there's the other side of it too, which is that we need to live in this world and we need to think of technology as being subservient to the things that we really are fighting for. So if you're an activist and you're working on human rights, focus on the human rights thing, prioritize that. Um, and, you know, we'll, you, we'll get the technology to work for you so that you can do your job as best we can um, and to keep you safe. But, but for the most part, like, you know, focus on the thing you need to do. Don't get overwhelmed by it. So I'm really interested in your comment about social norms and global prioritization. Could you expand a bit on that? Yeah, I can think of a few places where, um, you know, we can flip the script a bit on these issues around technology. So I think one is around the um, artificial intelligence, AI. It's, it's for, for my sector, I, every other article I read has something to do with AI. It's just really ubiquitous. But as a, tech, as a, technical, a technologically centered conversation, it's really nebulous because AI is not really a technology. Right? There's a lot of different things that might use algorithms and there might be some decision making in there and there might be some machine learning, but like it's not a category of technology. So um, like that's a, it's an unhelpful framing then. And so then to think about, okay, but what is actually the thing that's happening and to center the social dynamic around it. So if it's, um, a decision-making algorithm, algorithm that's in a social welfare system, for example, like what needs to happen is that that social welfare allocation and that decision-making process is what is focus and the, the outcomes based. So I guess the social norm needs to be around, um, you know, we can't, we can't let technology tell us the answer. We need to 
make sure that the technology is assisting us in getting to the right answer. But that means that sometimes the technology is going to be wrong because it doesn't never going to be able to approximate, you know, human knowledge and the way things. So that's like, you know, one social, social norm um, that I mean, or like around, you know, we were mentioning spyware, like export controls, like that's an important one, right? Like we need to be able to draw lines between the use or purpose technology and the the other use of it the way that it can be sort of abused or used for ill um is too great and so therefore we'd willing to consider like how we treat this piece of technology um do we need to put restrictions on who can buy it um do we need especially increased oversight over government funded body that purchases or acquires this technology um you know, that sort of thing like that's really important um to recognize like, who's holding who's holding this power, who's buying this equipment, who's using it and for what. Um, so those are things that really you can't, you can't and shouldn't try to put them into the technology itself, but you mm -hmm. have to create a context around it um, where we have thresholds of acceptable use, where we have thresholds of acceptable uh, misuse. I guess. So along these lines of, you know, what, how are we using technology? What is a particular technology we're prioritizing? What are the standards, ways in which uh, technologies are used? Uh, sorry, and I'm punning a bit there. Uh, let me just get to the chase of it. I know you're also involved in some technical standards uh, groups. I, I think you've been more in the IETF, where I've been more involved in the W3C. And I'm just, I'm just curious, why are you interested and involved in technical standards? And what has your experience been like being part of basically standards body processes. So yeah, that's right. Um, I have focused on standards for some years now. Um, and I think it's really interesting. I, I've always felt that there's an interesting dynamic between you know the human rights framework as a sort of standard. It's a global standard. I probably politically personally subscribe more to a view of you know social justice and that sort of thing. But you know, human rights framework, it's standards, you know, most countries in the world abide by it. It's you know, really, really youth framework. And that parallel with way that engineers set standards, I've always found that really interesting. And I actually co-chair a research group at the IRTF, which is the Internet Research Task Force, a sister organization to the Internet Engineering Task Force. Um, and the research group is titled Human Rights Protocol Considerations. So we're doing just that. We're looking at the human rights framework as a standard, and we're looking at literal internet standards and what are some of the interesting um, implications thereof. Um, I always found that to be kind of a curious parallel, but then I, I recently read a book about um, standard setting. It was about engineering and how that sort of the global standardization movement came about and how in the beginning it was incredibly idealistic. And the book actually, I hope this isn't a spoiler for anybody wanting to read it. It's a very academic book, so I doubt you will, but it actually ends with the human rights standards that that kind of was part of the movement it sort of ended up there oh really i know i was like it was kind of chilling actually i mean like i got chills from it. i was like this is really so it's not just like a feeling that there's something about these things that's similar it's actually they're part of the same sort of wave of you know if we can create norms and standards on a global level and set you know basic ways of complying and then maybe separately set up mechanisms for implementation and um, and regulation that can, you know, have a better world. And that was things people were saying in the 1800s about, you know, train tracks and screws, you awesome. know? Yeah, and it ended up being but, like, maybe we can do this for policy 
too. <laughs> so could, could you give us the uh, citation for that so we can put it in the show notes? Yeah, it's called Engineering Rules. And it was written by a couple of professors, I think in the last few years. Um, it sat on my shelf for a long time. I recently finished it and it was really great. But um, it gets very, very deep into into standards, but you'll like it, Chris, because there's a whole section on the W3C. They used it as a case study to talk about sort of modern standard setting as opposed to the sort of engineering field building standard setting of like the late 1800s and then the sort of, you know, war time standard setting and the third era being, you know, more um, sort of um, IETF and W3C are definitely sort of new agey in that sense, um, where it's, uh, yeah. There's just a lot of interesting things. So highly recommended if you if you want to think about standards. Can we take a quick pause? We've been talking about standards, but I don't think we've actually explained what web standards are for people who may not be familiar. And we've thrown around some acronyms. Yeah. Could we just back up and explain a little bit more what what this is we're talking about? What are these institutions? There are quite a few. Um, and they've all evolved over time to basically do, you know, to do their thing, which tends to be separate, although there's lots of overlap. But, you know, if we think about the way that the, the digital technology, we'll just keep it to that space, right? Um, you know, digital technology is set up, there's like the OSI layer system, which is a standard, an ISO standard. Um, you know, the different parts of the, of the stack are handled by different institutions, they're doing different things. But for the most part, I'm interested in global standard setting bodies, because I think that's where we can have the most leverage. So if you can change a standard, we don't necessarily guarantee that that's going to be implemented. But if it's a good standard, or at least maybe not a very bad standard, then you can change the way the internet works for many, many different people. So some of the places where I found um, interesting are uh, W3C. Um, so that's the Worldwide Web Consortium. That is, it's actually not technically a standard setting body because it's a consortium. It, you know, you, you have to be a member of the consortium. Um, you can not necessarily, you can be essentially any sort of entity, but it tends to be um, web browsers and, uh, and then folks that are invested in, you know, making, making content for, for web browsers. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, those standards are around how websites get displayed with HTML um, and, and how browsers handle web pages, more or less. There's obviously some blurry, fuzzy lines that then overlap into the next one, um, which I guess in our stack is going down a bit. And that's the Internet Engineering Task Force, which handles then the networking of the internet. So the internet itself, really low layer protocol stuff. So the, the end users of IETF standards are not going to be end users at all. They're not even going to be necessarily application developers. They're going to be folks who are running servers, who are running internet services, they're either handling traffic or routing traffic, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That's the IETF. And what does that acronym stand for? The Internet Engineering Task Force. And then the sister organization they also mentioned is Internet Research Task Force. And that really isn't setting standards, but it's looking into emerging issues. It's looking more deeply into the sort of long term um, effects and trying to influence perhaps the engineering side of things. So you have everything from like, there's a crypto forum uh, research group, there's my research group on human rights, there's stuff around you know, pathware networking or um, quantum computing or quantum networking, right? Um, mm -hmm. So there's, it's, it's a bit more nebulous. And, and again, doesn't necessarily have like engineering goals. It's more just like, 
a place to invest further. Um, going further down, closer to the hardware layer, and sometimes including it, would be the IEEE. Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers is the IEEE. It's the two electronics and electric, you know, that's the thing that always gets me. But um, that's where you find things being standardized around chipsets and, and the way hardware is working. So one interesting place where I've engaged or at least followed discussion a bit is um, in the 802 group. So this is around, um, again, it's there's the sort of physical data link to the IETF on networking. So it's like Wi-Fi routers. It's, you know, LAN standards um, has an effect, sure, on end users because they're buying, you know, home routers or, you know, airports are installing like major like Wi-Fi systems. Every Starbucks has probably got like the same routers and chipsets and they're all following IEEE standards. And so if you can change, you know, the ways in which, you know, MAC addresses, for example, are collected by these routers that has an implication for privacy. So there's some interesting mm -hmm. stuff around there. IEEE kind of is like an is like ISO in a way, which is International Standards Organization. They do a lot more than just standards and hardware. Also look at reach questions and things that fall outside of that a bit. I'll also mention two other ones that aren't going to fit into my nice little stack concept. There's the ITU, which is the International Telecommunication Union. It used to be the International Telegraph Union is the oldest standard body that we have, and it's also a UN body. And so that means that, you know, to be a member and to be um, setting standards, you have to be a government or you have to be part of a, um, a membership organization that goes with a government delegation. And they, there is a bit of overlap with, that, with the IETF, for example, there, but the ITU is most known for its um, radio sector, mm. um, which is really important to have international UN body handling. Um, spectrum allocation. That's really critical. Um, ITU also sets standards for mobile telephony that then gets implemented by other consortia and standard setting bodies, but that's where it tends to originate. And another really nice and useful thing that ITU does is they work with developing countries um, in their D sector to basically just pull up the, you know, the widespread industrialization in other places. Um, and it offers a lot of training and support for under-resourced nation states which is very helpful. And then the last one I'd mention is ICANN. And so um, it's the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names members, they're allocating domain names and they're allocating IP addresses. And mostly the former is where a lot of ICANN work sits in determining what are the norms and standards around the domain industry, which is in the early nine. In the early 1990s was a critical function because the domain space blew up and was really responsible for the dot-com burst um and so there's a whole um standards body around around that i think probably the average person thinks standards are probably a very dry and boring topic and they are in some ways they're also much more influential maybe than expected although not always you know uh, just because you write a standard doesn't mean that people will use it and you know that's there have definitely been tons of standards that have been written that just, you know, nobody decides to adopt them. But uh, the the presence of these organizations and the the role that happens within them can make a big impact. So I can I, I hadn't really uh, considered before we started this conversation that, you know, uh, that human rights institutions would be paying uh, very much direct attention to them. But but it does make sense uh, that uh, that that should happen. Definitely. You're exactly right. 
And I think part of the standing process, so it's not just about following these things on mailing lists. And a lot of them use mailing lists to do sort of everyday work. It's actually getting really deeply engaged because the process is what leads to the implementation. If it's a good process, if it's open, if there's a lot of collaborators, if there's a lot of implementers who are invested in getting this standard out, then there's going to be better adoption um, and it's going to be a better standard. So part of it's not just, you know, as rights advocates, we need to be aware of what's going on. Like some of us actually need to be there working on it. And that is a big difference. And it's also a really heavy lift for small nonprofits that maybe struggle to employ a public interest technologist, but then you have to send them to all these meetings around the world. Well, not in this, not this year, nobody's going anywhere, but generally speaking, it's actually quite a lot to say, we're going to send, we're going to have one programmatic person just do all these like really arcane, weird, you know, engineering space meetings that we actually don't really understand, but we know somehow they're there fighting for user privacy, anti-censorship, you know, all these things we care about, it's just so arcane to us, we actually don't know. So that's, it's one of the hard things about public interest technology, I think, like me who are engaging in internet standards, and there's, you know, many, many different ways to do public interest technology. But, but just speaking to this particular experience, it can, there can be challenges associated with that, which is that there's a divide between, you know, what kinds of knowledge and application is needed in, in this space versus what the rest of the nonprofit may be prioritizing and thinking about. So it's really about having a seat at the table instead of just observing the outcome. Exactly. We're actually trying to influence the, you know, change and change these standards or, or like I said, maybe not make a standard better or just make it not terrible, you know, catch things and say, actually, this have really serious implications for user privacy if it goes through as such. Maybe we can make there an adjustment or, you know, just acknowledge that this would be, a, you know, a privacy trade-off. You know, even sometimes that sometimes that's a really win. It's just to get a consideration section that alerts people. To, if you use this the way it's spec'd, you know, you're, you're putting your users at risk of privacy violation or whatever it is. Sometimes that's all we can do. This process is really political then, right? There's no way to make this an apolitical scenario. I think so. I think that awareness is increasing um, in part because you have now public interest technologists that are coming from other stakeholder groups that are pushing on these issues. I think for a very long time, it was seen as apolitical because it's just technology, right? It's just mm -hmm. bits and bytes, hither and yon, like there's, you know, nothing to see here. But in fact, over time, it really, these things really do have an effect. And, um, and the, sometimes the details really can, can highlight that. So it's, it's hard. I mean, even just not engaging in the politics of a space like that is political is a political decision, right? To not acknowledge the ways in which this will affect either end users or have an effect on, you know, the economic market or on other sorts of dynamics. And if you don't engage in it, if you if you make the decision not to engage in it, then that means that the other people who are engaging in it have their own agendas that you're just allowing to take over. I, I agree. And I think it, it does take a plurality of perspectives. I'm not saying that I perspective is always right, or that I come into a conversation about a standard having the answer. Um, and that's, you know, that's pretty, pretty common of any kind of advocate, whether it's over a law or a standard. But it's just about having the people at the table, having open multi processes that 
it's supposed to really get you to the right place at the end of the day. My experience has been that the particular standards groups I've been more involved in are the ones where I think there's a certain amount of consciousness about this being something that's more end user focused. But I've also been involved in, you know, like, because I work on decentralized social network stuff and stuff along those lines, where I think there is a certain amount of consciousness, even if not everybody at the table is saying it as such, uh, that, you know, this stuff is, you know, for users. But I've also been involved to a lesser degree in some standards groups where um, some kind of big, like, it started out with a few smaller uh, you know, kind of community members saying, hey, we want to start this group, we want to do this, this and that. And then like, you know, kind of the the big players step into the room and they say, and it's happening like this, right? Like, here's what's here's what we're going to do. And it's really difficult, I feel like. Um, so I'm, I'm going to link in the show notes, uh, a blog post by um, and a caveat here, this is a former boss of mine, Manu Sporni, um, but who, you know, I was interested in working with uh, his organization because they are, I think, fairly conscious about these kind of things. But they, they it, it's an article called Rebalancing How the Web is Built. And one of the things that's described in there is how um, he mentions that the W3C is funded off of this thin gruel of membership structure, Right. And uh, um, and those are you know corporate members giving uh, their funding, and there, I think there are quite a few people within the W3C who do have aspirations to not be influenced by that. But I feel like you know you can look at the W3C ratifying DRM effectively with EME, for example. And I think that in an alternate universe where the W3C maybe didn't have that funding structure, or where they weren't afraid of web browsers are only being made by these big players and all of the big players are going to move the mar- leave the market and just move somewhere else to do all the standardization, maybe they wouldn't have kind of caved on that. I feel like aspirationally, standards should be able to help level the playing field, but they're also kind of a place where the opposite could happen. What, it, what do you think? I think you're absolutely right. I think that that was the promise was that, you know, open standard setting is going to be you know, like a marketplace of ideas is going to be like, you know, you know, the open market will decide, you know, the best standards will rise to the top, you know, that sort of thing. But I think without checking that, without understanding that that's not really how it works and that there are going to be, there are existing uh, imbalances in power, like not even taking into consideration different stakeholder groups, but just within the private sector, within companies, there's different kinds of companies, different power dynamics, without checking that and being aware of it, you're going to get natural consolidation where the big players are able to leverage their influence. They're going to be able to leverage um, you know, their pockets right, to do a lot of deep research and um, development that then becomes standardized. And then to be able to further sort of cycle through and, and say like, look, this is our standard. Um, you know, they'll get patented. They'll, you know, and then that creates dominance and then so on and so forth. And it sort of, you know, feeds in and of itself. That's what we mean by consolidation. It can still work, like you're saying, that um, it, it levels the playing field. I think without it, right, we would be at massive disadvantage. Um, so that so the answer is not to eradicate it. But I do think that the model matters. So I think I, I said this earlier, where um, the W3C is a consortia. It's not exactly an open standards setting body. It's not really an SDO. Um, cons- other consortia, for example, is like the Bluetooth consortia, um, 
or, you know, and, and I think that it's an interesting model. It was a conscious decision made by Tim Berners-Lee because they, it was felt that an open standards body like the IETF is going to be too slow over time. It's going to take, you know, the IEEE takes like eight years for a good standard to make it, to, you know, market, meaning you can buy this a device using that standard off the shelf. That's a really long time. And I think there was a recognition that the web is going to have to change faster than that which is probably the right intuition, but then it comes with trade-offs um, because it's a pay to play and you know, you're going to get um, dominance and, and things like EME is if it gets standardized in the W3C or it becomes a recommendation in W3C, it, I mean, that's probably what's going to happen because there isn't actually an equivalent elsewhere that could keep up with a consortium. I think that it's important to be aware of it. And I don't think that there's enough election sometimes. And it maybe is something that comes many years of engaging the space of like, what are the particulars of this space where I'm working now? If I want to get something done, if I want to push for a change, um, how do I leverage this particular space because of the way that it's set up, because of the way that it has a funding model? The IEEE, it sells its standards. That's its funding model. The IETF, um, you know, there's the, the meeting participation fee, I think is mostly the the funding model or the sponsorship model, because you don't you don't pay to be a member. They don't sell their standards, so everything is a bit different. But I do think that that has an impact on it for sure. And one of these big players has done several things that made news in the last couple of weeks. So um, let's talk for a little bit about Google and how, as one of these big players, they're able to kind of police standards to their own agenda. Google is so interesting, and you can't really. It's hard to go to a standards body and not find a lot of Google folks there. Um, I mean, one place where you don't really find them is ICANN, for example, but like everywhere else, they're there, no? Um, so with the W3C, obviously, they're, they're really involved. Um, and then as well, I've seen them at the IETF in spades as well. They're you know, really key uh, implementers. And I think that they actually have come up with some really great ideas and helped push important things through um, that are really high profile. And, and you can't actually get a lot of implementation depending on what the mm -hmm. standard is or where it's it's focused on in the network if Google doesn't implement it, right? Because Google sort of controls uh, so much of the internet. And I don't just mean that monolithically. There's, you know, so many layers. There's the DNS, there's web browsers, there's the actual, you know, traffic mm -hmm. and routing and um, content delivery, all of that. Google is everywhere. Um, they participate a lot of GSMA because they're creating sort of their own standard around RCS, which is like a, a um, successor to SMS and to MMS so that they can send encrypted messages on Android message. So, I mean, it's just unexpected where you find Google folks. Um, but so that's a good thing in a way, because if you can get Google to do the right thing, then you can get a lot of other people to follow suit and it changes the landscape of the internet very quickly. But that can go obviously the other way very quickly. And that's why you see them in the news a lot. So the things that we've seen them in news for, um, the markup has done some really excellent and technically rigorous, well-informed reporting on AMP, which is the sort of way it one delivers content um, line now. So it, it, the simplest way I can describe what AMP is, is, you know, if you go to Google search and you type something in, you'll see anything displayed to you in a sort of neatly packaged way. Like there's a thumbnail, there's a title, there's a date, there's an author 
line and then there's a description. And, and that sort of started out as like maybe a standard so that everything looks nice when you look at it. But then that sort of ends up eating up the whole ecosystem to the point now where um, it's hard to find content online mm -hmm. that's not completely beholden to putting itself in the format of Google AMP and therefore leverage Google as essentially the intermediary that presents all the content to you all the time. And, and the other sort of competing standards for this sort of thing are uh, Facebook, I think it was called Facebook Issues or Facebook News, and then Apple News, and, and they've sort of all lost to AMP. So AMP sort of emerged as the, the main thing, but then of course that puts Google at a massive monetary advantage because that allows them to deliver ads that they want. Well, actually, a lot of AMP stuff involves Google serving up a bunch of this stuff through the CDN, even if they're not the authors of the content. Am, am I right about that? That's exactly right. And to the point where when it was early stages of AMP, one of the comments that we were on it was that you couldn't tell where the content was coming from. It was like devoid of all branding. You couldn't, and that was, that's a problem as we can immediately recognize now in this day and age for, for dis and misinformation. If I can't tell if this article is coming from Russia Today versus, you know, Voice of America, like that's a problem, right? So that it's better now because we've made comments like that. We've been like, you can't, you can't unbrand content that you didn't make just so you can use your CD and your ads, double whammy. So things like that, they've tweaked, but it still stands that any sort of intermediary centric technology like AMP is going to be a problem because the people that really are of primary consideration are the user, right? Because it's a privacy censorship thing. And then on the other end is the publisher and the publishers, online publishers are struggling. You know, we know newspapers all over the world are shuttering or they're being bought up right, by conglomerates. And, and so if you're really cutting out, you know, end user needs and you're sort of um, siphoning off revenue from publishers, we have a media ecosystem crisis. And yes, we want the web to work seamlessly and frictionlessly, but this is a really high cost to pay. I think people are really unhappy about that. So that sort of AMP sort of keeps Google in the news quite a bit. Um, another thing I already mentioned they're in news for is the end-to-end -end encryption now of Android messages. If people are using if people are using their mobile phones on an RCS uh, uh, compliant network, most are. And then also there is a move for the browser at the browser level and, and other um, parts of the web that Google controls to not allow for third-party cookies to track users, which is a very pro-privacy move, except for we know also that because Google controls so much of the web, they have their own tracking cookies and they're, as far as we can tell, have no plans of, um, you know, stopping the use of those. So it means then that they're able to cut out all their competitors um, that are using these to track people. Again, very big thumbs up. That is so sorely did. But can't really have both. So there are really two ways of you know going down is that Google just remains the only third-party cookie backing system out there, the only game in town. That's not really an acceptable, I think, alternative. Um, and then the real one is that, you know, how about neither, which is Google also needs not use third-party cookie tracking on sites that are not its own or things like that, so that there can be an evening of the playing field. But that you know, as it stands in the open market would be up to them. There's nothing that will force them to stop using third party cookies. Another thing that's been in the news, and it's interesting because some of these things are not exactly completely standards oriented, but I sometimes, uh, if you take the aspirational side of standards of, you know, allowing for 
freedom of implementation and stuff like that. The, the, the things that I think actually are really positive from a user empowerment perspective um, sometimes can feel kind of like they're flying in the face of it. And the, the thing that really upset me very recently, Google released an article saying uh, guidance for our effort to block less secure browsers and applications. And what they really were saying is, you know, for a number of these authenticated services, we're only going to allow browsers we've approved of, like uh, Firefox and Chrome, but especially Chrome. So this this bothers me on, on several levels. One level is they said, you know, you shouldn't be having application, like you shouldn't install plugins that are messing with any of the content or displaying it in a different way and stuff like that. This is really troubling on a number of levels. One of them is, you know, an accessibility level. You know, a lot of people actually need to be able to modify their browsers to be able to change content. And the way that it was described felt so heavy-handed and so strange. And also, you know, in theory, okay, maybe you're complying with all of the protocols technically with HTTP, but you're setting up the scenario where you're saying but we're only allowing a certain number of players to play the game. Now, they're making a privacy argument for why they're doing this, saying they're, you know, people are being uh, man-in-the-middle attacked, basically. They're being fished, and this can allow us to be able to prevent that. I'm doubtful that it will. Like, I'm sympathetic to the argument, though, but I think that it's really troubling. I mean, there are other architectural ways that maybe you can deal with this, but it's really troubling... Um, to 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 go in the direction of, you know, we're going to say, here are the only ones that are allowed to participate. A, it's, it's not something you can really prevent. You know, people can spoof user agents and they say, don't do it. And, you know, maybe what they'll follow up with is a legal approach, right? That's what DRM does. Uh, DRM usually fails from a technical perspective. People find some sort of workaround. But then from a legal perspective, you have, you know, the DMCA allows you to sue the pants off of people if they find workarounds, right? So I'm worried that that's kind of the approach that they'll take is, yeah, this will be easier to work around, but you know what? We're going to go after you either legally or forbid you to use our services if we find out that you've done some sort of workaround. So even if technically they haven't violated any of the text of the standards, they're doing something that feels very against the idea within standards that anyone can implement, and that being some sort of way of preventing monopolies in the market. Uh, do, you, do you feel like your read on that is similar, or what do you think? I think so, because there's some really obvious pressure valves that are not being used here. Like One is that you can set really high bars for things like user privacy or user security, but you need to let them opt out. You need to let users have control ultimately. This was the same thing that we saw with um, DNS over HTTPS, which is another sort of battle. That was like, if we were having this conversation a year ago, we'd probably be talking about Doe the whole time, which, you know, it's it, it's making the DNS, DNS queries more secure. And, you know, Firefox led on that, meaning that all the queries made in a Firefox browser would be using this secure form of DNS lookup. But you have to let users opt out. Or you have to also consider power users who maybe they know very well how to secure their own DNS and they've already got a way that they want to do it and they don't want their application interfering with that setup, right? Um, and so you can see that if they're not allowing for exceptions or user control to override these baseline settings, then they're not thinking about the user and they're thinking about themselves. Another pressure valve is, um, you know, just ensuring that the way that this gets rolled out is, um, you know, com competition 
you know, it, it takes in consideration competition and plurality and, and, and market health, right? So again, using Doe as an example, and, and this is Google, right? They, Chrome is going to do the same Doe uh, rollout that Firefox did, but they decided to do it differently, which is that they will opportunistically uh, do DNS query just in the same way that it's always been done. First, you ask your router and then your router asks your ISP and then the ISP asks you know, it's closest IXP, you know, that sort of thing, the whole sort of recursive lookup. Um, and they will do that if every single query and can be done with secure DNS. So Chrome is not going to push you to using Cloudflare or sort of preset, you know, secure DNS providers. They're going to try to do it opportunistically. And the reason why they said they wanted to do that was because they want to make it um, a competitive market. They want to raise bar then encourage many, many other intermediaries to meet that bar. So in this case, what it sounds like is they might have plans for that, right? Like we're going to start out with browsers that we know that are doing, you know, the right thing. So, you know, that's Firefox, Brave, and we'll expand from there. But it's still leaving out little players. So you need to create a path for those smaller players to be able to meet that standard and not get cut out. Because maybe they're just not meeting that standard for other reasons. It could be the you know, the browser is super niche or, you know, it's a browser embedded in an application that just doesn't have a team working on the browser side of things because everybody's working on the application side or whatever it is, right? That needs to be taken into consideration. You need to create um, scaffolding for the diversity of browsers out there to be able to meet their high standard or they're just doing it, take a corner um, market and that anti-competitive and wrong. So we've spent a lot of time talking about corporations as big players. But a lot of these standard organizations are, as you emphasized, global organizations. So that means that the other big players often are governments themselves. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And I do think it's actually, I mean, people say governments get involved in standards and some folks will react to that by being really terrified. (laughs) And others are, you know, it depends on maybe what your view of governments is. But I do think Governments should be involved in standards, not because they do the thing, often they don't, you know, aka Snowden Revelations, Five Eyes, like currently there are several countries that are trying to break into encryption. I can name, and they're all like liberal democracies, um, Australia, UK, mm-hmm. Germany, Brazil, India, like it's not great, right? But they need to be there. They need to be in these standards organizations participating from their sector, you know, specific perspective. Because again, I think it makes a better standard. And I'm also thinking about governments not being monolith, right? So the folks that, you know, work for maybe the local national standards body um, are the delegates. And they're maybe not the same they would find in like the foreign ministry or the state department level, right? Governments are really complicated. Um, and so you do sometimes want to make sure that the government is actually using these standards. Like for a while, there were plenty of government websites around the world that weren't even using HTTPS, like things like that have changed. So governments are sometimes implementers. And then, you know, sometimes they're adversaries, right? But it doesn't mm-hmm. serve us when they when they won't engage. And And the other reason why I think it's important is that we have the ITU, which is, like I was saying before, has some useful functions. There are some things that are concerning you know, about about the ITU because it is actually a government-only space. Um, and if they do invite other stakeholder groups, it's typically like large corporations. Um, very rarely do you see, you know, civil society advocates and so on. Um, and that is actually where they go then. So if, if the open standard setting bodies are not conducive to perhaps authoritarian 
government views around standard setting, they might wind up in the ITU, uh, which then creates a very, a very nice, tidy pipeline between um, what gets standardized in the technical sector and then what's handed to um, smaller, less well-resourced developing countries through the D sector. So you kind of have this like great pipeline in the ITU between like bad standards and um, implementation in developing countries. So we don't want um, bad ideas to die in the ITU because they actually don't end up dying. They, they end up getting implemented. Um, so we want to bring them into the light. So we need to be welcoming to governments. We need to be working with them. And so I don't want to exclude them. I want to, you know, I want us to sort of share reality a little bit. But on the other hand, you can also end up with governments putting pressure on these bodies for things like root access, right? Completely. Yeah. I, I think one interesting example that, I mean, we'll see how this plays out. But one thing that's been sort of talked about for many years that um, the DNS root system is mostly run by North Americans and Europeans. There's um, one of the 13 is in Japan. Um, and for the most part, like that's a really, that's a problem, obviously, from a geopolitical perspective. Um, and so some obviously rightly think we should have more root operators in other countries. Like, you know, Russia has definitely asked for one very publicly <laughs> over the years. In 2017, they threatened to leave you know, the DNS altogether, they've built, and I think they have actually built a parallel system to uh, not actually need the DNS anymore because they weren't given a root system. I mean, there's a lot of debate about what does that even mean? Like having a root, uh, you know, DNS root even matter? Like what could one do with that? Um, is it really that powerful? Maybe more scary is having uh, a root certificate authority where you're, you're actually, uh, man in the middling attacking people accessing various websites that's that's potentially a scarier type thing than the dns approach that's right i mean there's a lot of different threats out there and so maybe this is actually a rather benign one like why are folks so worried about that and i think by sort of the attack so far has been to just ignore the request and to just be like you know the root zone is apolitical like we're not getting involved this is like for diplomatic conversation. I think that's been like the wrong move, actually. I think that we do increasingly, as the technical community and as engineers, need to be able to be strategic about these questions as they arise. Because again, the result is not great. Um, you know, the when you, you're not giving authoritarians um, their options, right, they will sort of continue to escalate. Right? Like we seen that with censorship a lot if i could just go a little aside maybe as an illustrative example it's like we've been sort of slowly securing the various layers right because when you know the internet was built there was like nothing it's just wide open plain text as far as that i can see and we realized oh maybe that's not like super great actually <laughs> and it's taken a while to sort of go layer by layer protocol by protocol and like fix it and authenticate it because those things go hand in hand, unfortunately. And so it's a lot and we've, it's kind of taken a while. And one of the last things, um, you know, well, I guess, I guess centers and privacy, they're, it's like two sides of the same coin. You know, if you can improve a protocol from a privacy perspective, it also improves it, makes it censorship resistant. Cause if you can't tell who someone is or what they're looking at, it's really hard to stop that from happening. Right. So, um, but the, you know, it, is we do things like you know HTTPS, and then we have TLS, improve improving that, and and improving you know the security of what's in the headers, and then you do things like encrypted um, server name indicator, uh, because domain 
fronting. But that's a whole other thing. But you know, domain fronting doesn't work more with the too big to block providers because they basically disabled perfectly great functioning um, aspect of TLS. One by three. Anyway, you know, so so encrypting server name indication, and then now sensors. We just saw uh, maybe a month ago, China said it is blocking all traffic that uses encrypted SNI, and it's blocking all TLS 1.3 traffic. That is serious. And, and I think Russia also far behind, not far behind, they have a law that's currently making its way through their legislative process that will effectively do the same thing to block all ESNI traffic and all. And it's because they can't get into the traffic. So if you're going to throw a bunch of encrypted bits in a header, really easy to spot and they'll just block it. So not great. Like we tried, <laughs> but you sort of stick out and, you know, so, so I guess what I mean to say is that it's a cat and mouse game. And I think, um, you know, diplomatically seeing and, and the way engineers can sort of um, get a bit hip to this dynamic is to try to interpret what, you know, governments might be looking for and what they're going to do so that you can, you know, build these things that are not going to make it worse. Yeah, so we've talked about a lot of problems, and we've we have talked about a lot of problem solving. But I'm I'm very interested in shifting more on the problem solving in a forward looking way. So, what are the paths forward available to us? Is there a way to take a better approach? Uh, what if we, you know, we talked about some of these standards organizations being you have people showing up representing their job and then they basically you know say okay well that's that's what my my job is is i i got to represent my employer um and is there maybe a way to kind of counteract that by saying you know like well in our standards organization in 2021 we're going to set an agenda that we're going to focus on the needs of users or something like that is that like that a path forward or what's what's another way to be able to get us to a point where we're doing the more the right things for users more often i think there are some things that are moving in this direction and we can continue to push in that way and amplify it so one is that you mentioned trying to center the users as much as possible and this i think is done fairly well at the wc just because the beneficiaries of recommendations are end user. They're using the web, they're reading things, right? And it's harder in the more abstracted you get, the IETF, IEEE, like it's harder to remember the user because they're actually not the ones being implemented, but we need to reinforce actually that that is what we're doing, right? Um, there was an RFC from the IETF that went out this year, 8890, that um, the title of it is the internet is for the end user. And it's great. It's not a standard setting document. It's an informational RFC. Um, but it comes from the Internet Architecture Board, and it's just, again, it's like a norm setting. Like we're trying to set the social norm for engineers around why we're doing what we're doing as a sort of reminder. And I think that that's a, it's a cultural shift. It's the long game. I think we should continue playing the game, even if it doesn't have direct consequences on standards being implemented and all. For, uh, for those of us who, who don't know, could you explain what an RFC is? So RFC as an acronym is rather useless. It, it stands for request for comments. It's just a polite way, I guess, of saying, this is a standard, what do you think? But actually there's no, what do you think? Because once it's RFC, it's like, that's it. <laughs> um, it's the end, <laughs> sort of like if, if W3C puts out recommendations, the IETF puts out RFC and every standards organization has its own terminology for what is the end product. That's, that's what an RFC is. Um, okay. Another one that I think would help a lot is to, again, like diversify these spaces a bit more. And I don't mean like 
necessarily identity politics, although that would be very helpful um, because diversity is is competency, um, but but also like diversity of stakeholder groups. So you know we need smaller companies and corporations involved, not just like the really big ones. So I think that'll change a lot. You know. Um, we you you've you've mentioned that you work on like decentralized social media we need small implementers we need users to have choice we need not just like one encrypted messaging app we actually need several and they all should be using the same standards um and they all should have roughly the same user interface and hopefully multiple backends that they talk through right yeah exactly federation would be beautiful although there is messaging layer security Re, uh, working group at the IETF that's meant to standardize group messaging with encryption, such as Signal. Um, and but they say explicitly in their charter that they're not trying to make federation happen, which I think is a pity. But it would be step zero, right, to making federation hap happen. So maybe you know we can work on that other angle and try to get federation to happen. But anyway, I mean, I think that 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 really helps. You know, not having just like one browser, you need a few at least, and ideally you have many. And so that would really really help. But again, the bar is super high because a lot of meetings, a lot of travel, a lot of time, and a lot of you know smaller organ smaller companies, just like NGOs, they're struggling to you know with capacity anyway, and it feels like a drain. But I do think the ecosystem would would be much better off if it were more diverse, and then that can help sort of balance power a bit more because then it's a sort of again it's a numbers game. But that I think is still always going to be an issue. I don't actually think that we can process our way out of like administratively process or otherwise process our way out of the power imbalance. We just have to be aware about it and vigilant and not let it hide. Frankly, I think we have to be a lot better about calling it out. And, um, and I think that there, that sort of happens through the abstraction layer of like financial, like, you know, company health and, and profits and things like that, but it needs to happen actually at the engineering level too. And we can't be polite about it anymore because it's the same with the diplomatic dodge. Like it's not helpful to, to ignore these elephants in the room. So it sounds like a lot of what we're talking about in Paths Forward is uh, ensuring that we've got diversity uh, in, you know, size, type, and location of organizations and trying to control the imbalance of power. But one thing that we haven't really talked about yet is how that the levels of power can change. So something might start off as a smaller community-oriented uh, effort, and then once it gets larger and scales up, then it gets more power and becomes more corporate. Or vice versa, things could start out more corporate, and then we could see things break off into smaller uh, groups as well. Yeah, I think that I think that those all happen. We've definitely seen them in the free software community for sure. I would actually just like to mention this doesn't exactly answer your question other than to agree with you, but that um, I have heard folks in the IETF talk a lot about how we should not just learn from the free and open source software community, but actually try to get more of them in. So this is also a call to folks that maybe feel like they're just really jamming on their particular application or their particular project. To think about how they might um, work in standards as well because it's not just about necessarily the technology it's also about like the experience and the community um, orientation and that uh, commitment to like goals that are bigger than mm -hmm. than oneself that really i think the ietf is very much aligned with but 
there is kind of some functional separation between the two communities. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe over time has happened, but that maybe we would want to correct. So I just wanted to throw that out there as something I um, I feel like is appropriate for the podcast. Well, and we, we talked a little bit in a previous podcast about uh, that's basically how Chris got into uh, the web standards is they needed something for Media Goblin that didn't exist yet. So they started going to the web standards group. That's right. It was Jessica Talon and I showing up and I said to her, don't worry, we're going to only show up for an hour a week. And uh, everybody else is going to be, they're the, they'll be the adults in the room who are going to handle where things need to go. And you and I will just, we'll just be there to make sure that it, that the stuff that gets built matches our needs. And then it, this became like the next three years of our lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually talked to a friend and he said, well, you know, I'm like, I don't know why anybody's taking me seriously. And he's like, well, revolutions are run by the people who showed up and you showed up. So that's why you've got all this responsibility now. I mean, that's a great story but also yeah three years is a long time that definitely happens right and 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 i think at the end though you have something that has global application and demonstrated need and that'd be quite awesome actually yeah don't let that three years scare you away yeah <laughs> it, it doesn't always take three years but yeah i can um i think there's one other thing we haven't talked about you know we talked about this stuff is not apolitical which i i agree with the choice to, well, I'll just represent my employer is a political choice. And the choice to say, well, we're going to focus on the needs of users, that's a political choice. Um, And I think that a lot of times you hear this, this thing as if it's a conflict of like, it's technology versus um, politics, you know, and, and also versus policy. And I think one of the nice things about being in the the standard space is that it's kind of both at the same time and you're you're not pretending those are two separate things but i also think that like there are also opportunities like the actual the actual infrastructure choices we make can actually result in different available options right the the availability of encryption everywhere in uh https changes the dynamics of what kind of political things are possible. Similarly, if you know, if you have more peer-to-peer systems, that changes what's available. And I guess likewise, uh, whether or not you've made these things easy enough for users, right? Like if you're saying, okay, well everybody, you gotta learn PGP, you gotta learn to do it via the command line and stuff like that. That's a very different thing than, you know, you know, oh, just install this app on your phone and it the encryption just works, right? So like I don't know. What do you what do you think about about that maybe false kind of view of this being a trade-off and whether or not we can be more optimistic about yeah, actually we can we can try to look for the technical approaches and structures and UI choices and everything that enable a more positive future. But do you, do you have comments on that? I do. And I um heard this throughout my career about the policy versus tech um, that, you know, tech moves fast and policy moves slow. And, you know, it, and it comes up over and over again. It is the, um, it is the running theme of a lot of the work that I do to watch a government realize that it can't do something with policy because of the way that something works technically. And so then they start to go to the tech, try to influence it there. Um, um, we see it sometimes when, you know, there's a hearings televised and, you know, the big tech heads go and testify and, and even the lawmakers don't even know what questions to ask, right? And it just 
entrenches this view that the two are completely at sync and there's just no way to rectify it. And the policy is, you know, it, it's a trope, right, at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that actually at the end of the day, the right approach is to um, give users the, the central platform, that, that users need to be in charge of these decisions, that um, they can build trust with providers and device manufacturers, um, and that that forces then the business model to comply with what users really want, right? Like one of the great things about the standards bodies is that those kinds of angles, I guess, get workshopped, right? So like Mozilla, I would say, has demonstrated to its peers, both in the W3C and in the IETF, that privacy can be a business model. You can offer privacy and then people will use you because of that, right? Mm -hmm. Or many other examples out there related to security, right? Like once word gets out that your stuff is more secure than your competitors, security becomes the business model. And that's a really good thing. And that'll drive innovation towards user-centric security. Um, And I think then we have to also show policymakers that that's the way forward too. It's a hard sell when you're talking about authoritarian governments. But it should be the case that we can have these things. And if we center the user and what they really need, um, which is to be able to have confidential conversations when and how they want with who they want, um, if you know, and they, and they can do so without having to, um, you know, learn a bunch of like arcane steps that it can just be like, that is what this app offer you. Because otherwise, you would be very much at risk of your credit card number being stolen or you know, whatever, right? And just trusting people to do the right thing. Um, well, that can happen, right? You can, you don't have to build your, um, your country around the parental controls, right? Like that was the big mm-hmm. thing in the UK they got recently really upset about. We were talking about Doe earlier, DNS over HTTP is that, you know, the, the censorship, UK being the biggest censor in the world, they block um, upwards of 4,000 URLs more than any other I mean, maybe not China, but you know, and it's and it's because that's just sort of the culture, right? That you prevent, uh, you know, your children from accessing the content, rather than like, you know, just tell them not to to it. Or there are other yeah. other other uh, societies solve this problem in other ways, right? Um, I think that that's this is also then an opportunity, right, to to set norms and standards around policy too. It may be slower, but I think that that's the right answer. It's like you can't really force it. And we shouldn't be thinking about technology as the baseline. That's actually pretty wrong. We should be working on technology to make the best technology it can be from an engineering perspective based on, you know, a set of principles like, you know, again, user-centered principles um, and build the technology from there. And, and I think similarly, policy, take a page from that book as well. So Mallory, it's been so great having you here on the show. Um, I think that you know, we, we talk a lot about, yeah, you know, these technical decisions and everything like that. They're really important from a human rights perspective, but it's been really great having somebody who that's their actual job, you know, working at a right human rights institution and talking about uh, how that technology applies. So it's been really great having you on the show and also thinking about standards and how those apply to those kinds of perspectives. And, you know, one of the reasons that I think Morgan and I, you know, frame this as Fawcett Crafts is that we we wanted to have a perspective of things being very participatory, right? And uh, so 
So just thank you again. I'm sure all of our listeners are going to enjoy this just as much as we did in this conversation. Thanks so much for having me. I wish I could do this often, which is to talk about this um, really deep technical stuff with more end users so that I can be a better public advocate when I go into the standards. So thanks for helping me do that. To that end, if you are looking for feedback from end users, uh, is there a way that people can contact you if they want to give you more feedback? Absolutely. So I'm Mallory Nodal on Twitter, first name, last name, and I'm also Mallory on GitHub. So you can DM me on GitHub and yeah, I look forward to engaging with folks on social media. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Thanks. Take care, everybody. See you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christopher Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Christopher Lemmerweber, meaning myself, and Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC01.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community, hash Foss and Crafts, on irc.freenode.net. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash c-w-e-b-b-e-r. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free and stay crafty. I hope you can do this for me. We can edit it out. Oh, bless you.